0: One of the things I've talked about recently here at church is uh, my, my family and I, my wife and I, we've been building a house. And uh, it's been a, a fantastic uh, opportunity for me to learn. Uh, when I say we're building a house, you're like, Kevin, you know what you're... T- I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. It's been really fun to learn. Uh, one of the things that I have gained so much appreciation for, I have learned the value. In fact, I may have even begun to fall in love with instruction manuals. I'm just saying... Like, a good set of instruction manuals makes my life so much easier. When I was building the stair railing, there was no instruction manuals. I was told, build the stairs, they should look like this when you're done. Do you know how long that takes? There's something to be said about having an instruction manual. Uh, sometimes, you, though, sometimes, though, you get those instruction manuals, maybe from Ikea, that look at a little, little something like this, where they give you all the parts, they say, this is what it should look like when it's done, and you start building it. And then you get to the question where, how do these things fit together? And, and, and in fact, one of the worst things is when you're building something, and, and they show you, here's all your pieces, and you get done, and there's like, you know, there's like 27 pieces left over. And you're like, hey, kids, you guys want to come try this out first? Before I try it, let's make sure. Anybody else been there and done that? There's something to be said about instruction manuals. Now, when you think about faith, though, have you ever thought, I wish there was an instruction manual for prayer? Have you ever thought, like, I wish, I wish I knew, like, what prayer, how it was supposed to work? Because there's some of us that have been there. Some of us have said, man, I've tried praying. I've tried praying, and it seemed like nothing happened. Like, like I prayed, God, God, bring me a spouse. God, I really, I, I want a spouse. God, God, would you, would you heal my, my mom? She's got this disease. God, would you, would you heal her? Would you spare her life? God, would you help us get out of debt? We've got this debt. God, would you help us get out of debt? God, God, would you, would you help me break this addiction? This addiction that has been clamping down on my life. I know it's a problem. God, would you help me just get rid of it? God, would you help the Seahawks keep Jimmy Graham? Like, we've prayed these prayers. I've prayed these prayers. Let me clarify that. And do you ever get to the time where you're praying and you're like, man, something's not working here. Because I'm praying, I'm not seeing, like like nothing's happening. And when you pray like this, sometimes you're left to begin to wonder. Like maybe, maybe this isn't working. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't like me. Maybe God's angry with me. And we have these doubts that begin to fill our mind because maybe we just don't know how this whole idea about prayer is supposed to work. In fact, I want us to understand something about prayer, about how powerful prayer is. Uh, Prayer is the key for us to experience contentment and joy in our life. Prayer is absolutely that powerful. But again, if I'm just going to be honest, even though prayer prayer is that powerful, man, it's almost like there's no instruction manual. Like, Ikea hasn't got to that point of of printing it out for us. And it kind of feels difficult Listen, if you're in that spot and you're like, man, prayer is hard and I don't quite understand it. Listen, you're, you're not alone. There, there's many of us in here today that would say, prayer is a struggle. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. In fact, there was a day when Jesus was hanging out with his disciples. He's hanging out with his homeboys. They're out walking and talking about whatever. And uh, the, a couple of the disciples, they stop and say, hey, Jesus, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Like, give us the instructions. How are we supposed to do this prayer thing? You know what Jesus did? He turned to Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. This is a series that we've been in for uh, a couple of uh, weeks now. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which I call the greatest sermon ever told. Surprise, it's not by me. It's by Jesus himself. Uh, the greatest sermon ever told. And we've been dealing with this idea of what Jesus is going to teach us. Here in, in chapter 5, chapter 6, is, which is where we'll be, Jesus has been dealing with our motives He's been saying, uh, listen, if we have a motive to be seen by other people for our religious work, for going to church, if that's why we go to church, that Jesus says there's no reward from God in that. That becomes the only reward you get, someone clapping for you and thinking you're a good person. And so he's dealing with these hard things, dealing with our motives. And he kind of builds on this bigger thing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that God is more concerned with our heart, not just our actions. Do you understand that? God isn't just concerned about what you do. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to be fully dedicated to him. Because listen, we can do a lot of things and not really have any intent to do them, right? We can just go through the motions. And that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for our heart. And so while Jesus is talking about this idea, about our motives, he stops and he deals with this idea about prayer. He says, listen, prayer, prayer is not to be seen by others. Prayer is not so that people think you're you're, you're, uh, religious because you use a lot of fancy terms. He's going to actually stop and teach us how to pray. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the next two weeks, and we're going to look at this idea of of prayer. And we're going to say, God, would you help us to understand, like, how we're supposed to pray? Teach us how to pray, Lord. So we're going to look at what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. Uh, I want to be clear when we get to the lord's prayer the lord's prayer is not some magic formula You know, like if you just say things just the way that jesus does Then he's like your genie in a bottle you've rubbed them the right way and you're going to get whatever you want That's not what the lord's prayer is It's it's not something that we're to repeat verbatim word for word constantly just repeating the same thing over and over In fact in verse 9 jesus says pray like this And so what he's doing is he's giving us uh, he's giving us a foundation He's giving us a structure for us to to follow when we pray. Uh, Without a foundation, or if you have a weak foundation, the house is going to be all skewed when you build it. And the whole thing is going to be thrown off. And so here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is giving us a solid foundation that will guide us through uh, various parts of prayer. And so the next two weeks, here's here's our big idea, is that effective prayer, it recognizes who God is, It seeks God's will, and it displays our dependence in him. It's going to be the single statement we're going to look at for the next two weeks. So with that, before we read, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. We'll ask for God's blessing in our time together. God, I want to thank you for just the opportunity to be here today, uh, to be gathered uh, with church. God, we know the church isn't just a building, it's the people. So we're thankful to be gathered with your people today. And Lord, as we we deal with this topic of prayer, Lord, I know prayer is something that uh, many people believe in, but sometimes it's just hard. So God, I pray that you would give us understanding of of the type of prayer, God, that you're looking for on how we as people can pray effective prayers. I know that, God, you're you're hearing us. God, I pray that you give us a deep understanding of who you are today. God, I pray that you help us to understand what your will looks like in our life. God, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified through our time together, Jesus, in your holy and precious name, amen. So here's, here's our text. Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, uh, there's an usher in the back. I'd love to come and give one of these to you. All the words will be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, it says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, what's interesting is you look at the Lord's Prayer. Again, it's this idea, there's going to be three things we learn from that. We're going to first learn uh, who God is. We're going to understand who God is. In fact, the very beginning of this prayer, uh, this is what Jesus does. He he identifies who God is by who he says we direct our prayers to. The very first part of verse 9, he says, Our Father which art in heaven. That is who we pray to. We pray to the Father in heaven. And this is a huge statement for us to understand. Many people, we, we generally understand about the fatherhood of God. We say, well, you know, we're all created by God. And because we're created by God, that means we're God's children. And there's many people in our day, and most people in Jesus' day, that understood that idea. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the idea of the fatherhood of God, you see that term father used 14 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to this idea about uh, God being our creation God, our creation father. And that he created us, and by him creating us, he is our father. But the idea of that is, is it's almost always in reference to a nation. It's not a personal thing. It's kind of like, you know, God, you're, you're, the, you're, you're the God of Israel. You're the God of these people, but it's not much of a, of a personal God. It's kind of like God's our distant deity. We know he's somewhere out there, uh, but there's not much personal interaction. And, and what Jesus does is he's going to uh, completely change that idea. He's going to teach something completely different. Because when he prays and says, Father, and that word Father actually comes from a word uh, called uh, Petra, or, or Pater, excuse me, which comes from the word Abba. Now, some of you, if you've been in church world very long, uh, you like some of these Greek words. Uh, the word Abba is, is a very, is a personal word. It's a, it's a family term. It, it, it's a term that, that deals with um, affection. This would be, in our modern day, we might call uh, Daddy. Daddy dearest, father dearest. That would be the idea of what Jesus is saying, how we're to pray to God. And what he's doing is is Jesus is trying to transfer this big theological idea that we all know we're created by God and he's our father. He's trying to transfer that idea into God our father being very personable, being very intimate, uh, about about a a loving experience, a, a very intimate personal relationship with God the father. I think we can understand the difference in this, is, is many of us know what the idea of, a, of, a, of a, a baby daddy is, right? I mean, any man can be a baby daddy, but it takes a real man to be a real dad, right? It takes a real man to walk through life with their kids, to love them, to shape them, to, to shelter them. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand with God. is he's not just our baby daddy. he's our real daddy. In fact, more than just being our, our, our creator God, Ephesians 1 says that uh, when we place our faith in Jesus, when we become a Christian, Ephesians 1 says that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. That we actually get adopted into his family. First John chapter 3 says, How great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we shall be called the children of God. See, God is the Father not just did he create us, but God adopted us. You know what happens in the adoption process? Listen, I was adopted when I was a year old. I did nothing to get adopted. Like, there's nothing I did. It is a parent's decision solely based on love to adopt you and to call you their own. And that is what God has done. He has called us. He has chosen you and he has adopted you nothing by nothing of what you've done but by his grace and his love alone and this is why we can have this confidence to pray to our father because he isn't some distant deity he isn't some genie in a bottle somewhere out there and we hope he's going to hear our prayers he is our father god the father you know what that means god the father here's what it means when god is our father It means that he loves us unconditionally. When God is our father, it means that he is always present and available to us. When he is the father, it means that he cares about the smallest details of our lives. Means that when he's our father, that he's concerned for our best interest. When he's our father, it means he believes in us. It means he won't leave us. It means he loves us deeply. And when we understand that God is our father like that, man, doesn't it give praying a whole new sense of of communication? Where I'm not praying to this God who's somewhere out in the cosmos, but I'm praying to my father who loves me unconditionally. Who wants the best for me? You know, I recognize when we start talking about fathers and dads, I recognize there are some who have had really good examples of what that looks like. But there's a lot of us who haven't had that good of an example. And when we use that term father, there are some deep wounds inside of our hearts. There are some things that are deep down uh, that we've been left hurt, we've been left abandoned we've been broken listen when you hear that term father if that's the feeling that rises up in you let me just say i'm sorry i'm sorry you've had to go through that i'm sorry that's been your experience but i want to encourage you today to reclaim that word father instead of allowing that term father to represent the pains of the past Reclaim that word today and allow that definition of father not to be based on your previous experience, but base that term father on who God is, on the perfect father, on the good father that is defined by God's character, not by the failures of your physical father. Because remember, God is our good father. He won't leave you. He won't abandon you. He won't hurt you. He will do what's best for you. He's always available. You don't have to earn his love. It is unconditional. Listen, I know when you grow up with dad issues, I've I've been there. You've got those dad issues and you struggle a little bit with self-esteem. You struggle with your identity. Man, I need someone to affirm me. I need to know I'm on the right track. That's part of, of having those dad issues. When you come to know the love of God, the Father, when you know God is your Father, as Abba, Father, not as your distant deity, but as you have a personal relationship with Him, that is a simple understanding that transforms the way you see life because that identity comes from Him. The self-esteem begins to change because you know that you are loved and accepted by him, and he's the one who matters most. That is a love that is beyond imagine. You know what happens when you have the love of a father like that? I love, we've got five kids, I've got four boys and one girl. And I love that because when my kids recognize that in me, they say, dad, you're untouchable. I think, dad, you're, nobody, can, nobody can mess with you. In fact, my little boy comes in a couple years ago, and he says, he says, hey, Dad, you can beat up Uncle Dusty, right? He says, yeah, yeah, Col- Colton, my cousin, he says Uncle Dusty can beat you up, but Dad, I know you can beat Uncle Dusty up. And now, you may not know my Uncle Dusty, or Uncle Dusty. Uncle Dusty's got muscles in places I didn't even know existed, right? But to my little boy... Dad can do anything. He's not that kind of dad that we want. A dad that we know is always there for us. A dad that we know can handle whatever's going on. That's looking out for the best and can beat anybody up. Listen, that is God the Father. That is God the Father. And see, when you have a father like that, it changes how you pray. Because you're not just praying to some distant somebody out there. You're praying to dad. You're praying to dad. And the opening lines of this prayer, it just has such tenderness and power. When we pray, our father, our father. He loves you. He wants the best for you. Man, some of us in here today, Some of us in here today, that's what we need to pray. Say, God, help me to know you as a father. Help me to have a personal relationship with you. You're not just someone out there, but you're the good, good father. You're the one who loves me, who won't leave me, who won't abandon me. Some of us just need to pray a simple prayer. Say, God, help me to know you as Abba, Father, Dad. He says, our Father, and the second phrase that he uses is, our Father who art in heaven. Again, we understand Father means a a personal relationship, a close personal relationship. But then he includes the statement, our Father in heaven. And this reminds us that he's not just any father. I mean, he's he still, yes, he's dad, but he's still the sovereign God, creator of all things. He's still the Lord of lords and the king of kings. So yes, we have this personal, close, intimate relationship with God, but there's still this idea that God still demands a certain amount of respect, a certain amount of awe, a certain amount of, of reverence that we owe our dad. Think about this with my wife. I think my wife and I have a good relationship. Uh, we're close, but there's certain things I don't call her because the back of her hand doesn't feel really good against my cheek. The couch doesn't feel very good. There's a certain amount of awe and reverence that we can be close, but I'm still going to respect her the way she deserves to be respected. And this is a way that, that Jesus wants us to view God, is he is our personal father. Close relationship, but he's still our father in heaven. There's still a certain amount of reverence and awe that we owe him. In fact, this next, fa- next phrase He says, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Carries that same idea about who God is. To hallow means to uh, to be set apart as holy. When we hallow somebody, we treat them as if they are holy. We give them reverence for who they are. And what Jesus is teaching us is when we pray, that we pray and we give God a unique reverence that his character deserves. That God is worthy of our hallowing. God is worthy of our respect and our honor. A couple of verses just carries this idea. Psalm 111 says, God sent redemption to his people. He has committed his covenant forever. Again, this is a God who's not going to abandon you and turn his back on you. He's faithful. And he says, holy and awesome is his name. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. This is us looking and saying, God, you are worthy. God, you are righteous. You are, are, are worthy of all of this. And, and Jesus says, when we pray, we need to take time to, to praise his name and recognize who he is. We begin to pray and say, God, you are ever-loving. God, I know this is true about you. Your word says this Noah, this is true about you. And it's kind of one of those things where, where it's not that God needs to hear it, but it's probably more so that we need to be reminded of it too, don't we? God, that's right. You are awesome. God, that's right, You are omniscient. You know all things. Oh God, that's right. You are omnipresent. You are everywhere. Oh God, that's right. You are all-powerful. You can do all things. We hallow his name and are reminded of those things. And what happens is when we pray with that awe and that respect to who God is, that begins to change how we live. See, when we're praying and we're praying and saying things like, God, God, you are so powerful. God, you are so loving. God, you are so gracious and forgiving. Listen, when you pray those sorts of things, it changes the way you live. So your words match up with what you pray. See, when you go through, we, we hallow God's name through our words. When we uh, worship and, and admire him, uh, our words, how we talk to him in, to, uh, in front of other people, that help us to hallow his name. But hallowing God's name does more than just our words. I was thinking about like this. Uh, when, when I was nine years old, my dad died. And, uh, and so I uh, grew up without a dad, uh, remember that. And I had a couple of father figures I looked up to. I had a brother who was eight years older than I was. Um, He was eight years older than I am, and he's a foot taller than I am. So I really had to look up to him, really to look up to him. But I did. I've always looked up to him. He's someone I I wanted to to make proud. After dad died, my brother went to Australia for two years on a mission. And he came home And I, and he used to write me letters and this was before there was cell phones and Facebook and all those other things. Uh, So he would write letters and and he would encourage me. And he said, oh, you know, I love basketball and you should get into sports. So I got into baseball. And my brother came home after two years. And so this was, uh, uh, I don't know how old I was, 11, 12 years old. And he said, hey, Kevin, my first first thing I want to do when I come home is I'm going to come to one of your baseball games. And I thought, you know what? My brother, who I look up to, Man, I want to make him proud. I want to make him so proud. So I'm going to have my best game ever. And I remember this game very clearly. I thought my brother's going to be there. So I got up to bat one of my first times at bat. And I'm like, I'm going to have a good game. I'm going to hit the ball. And I hit the ball farther than I ever hit it. In fact, I had one home run in my entire Little League career. Actually, scratch that. I have had one home run in my entire baseball career. And it was that day when my brother came to watch me. And I routed those bases and came home and I jumped on home plate and I felt really proud. And and I see my brother out there and he's smiling and I'm like, man, I'm going to do even more. I'm going to make even more proud. So I go out the next inning and I'm playing third base and I'm like, nothing's going to get past me. And I'm playing third base and a fly ball comes up and he's coming a foul ball. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to catch this foul ball. And I'm running and I'm running and I didn't see the chain link fence in front of me. And I ran face first in the chain link fence. Got knocked myself straight out cold, like unconscious, on the ground. You see chain link all over my face. You could see the imprint. I don't think that was what I intended. But my goal was to make my brother proud. My goal was I wanted to, to make him proud of me. When we live our lives, how we live our lives are part of how we hallow God's name. That when we say, yes, God, you are awesome. Yes, God, you are worthy of all the praise. We have to actually live our lives that show that he is that thing. That we, just as we would with a dad, we want to make him proud. We shape our lives in a way that he could be proud of to hallow his name. Like it or not, the reality is if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you claim to be a Christian, there's people that are watching you. There are people that are watching you that are saying, I want to see what your God is all about. And how you live your life will determine their view about your God. Listen, this is why hypocrisy is killer. This is why hypocrisy is so detrimental. Because when we say we believe one thing about God and live a completely different way, man, that just throws your God under the bus shows you have a God who isn't that powerful. You have a God who can't change. Doesn't mean we have to be perfect. Absolutely not. Nobody here is going to be perfect. And I'm the first one to admit that. That means that we become poor in spirit. That we recognize, yeah, we've got some brokenness. We've got some areas that we struggle in. But we can acknowledge that. We can repent of those areas and pursue righteousness and take steps to, to make those things the way that God would want them In our life. This is where when we hallow his name. We we pursue the things of God. We, We do justice. We love mercy. We walk humbly with him. And we hallow his name by the way that we live. That's number one. As far as effective prayer. We've got to recognize who he is. We've got to recognize him as father. We've got to recognize him as worthy of praise and honor and glory. The second thing that this prayer teaches us is that we're supposed to seek his will. We're supposed to seek his will. The next first phrase in chapter 10 says, Your kingdom come. We pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now this phrase, your kingdom come, it ties into the next phrase, your will be done. But we're going to look at this phrase first. Because we're to pray for God's kingdom. We're to pray for God's kingdom to come. And there's two ways that we pray for God's kingdom. In the first sense, we pray for God's kingdom in the future. There's going to be a time where Jesus' kingdom is going to come for final in the future. This is when God is going to set all things right in our world. I mean, the reality is, we live in a broken world, right? There's brokenness all around us. There's bad things that happen all over the place. And isn't Isn't it those things that drive us to prayer oftentimes? When things are falling apart, when there's sickness and death and disease and violence and and evil. I mean, isn't that those things that drive us to prayer? So we're praying in some sense, Lord, your kingdom come. Come and make all things right. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 21 uh, says... That there's coming a day when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall thou thou be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anywhere. For the former things have passed away. We pray, God, your kingdom come. Bring that time when your kingdom is is, is all there is and everything is made right. In fact, one of the last phrases in, in the book of Revelation, in the Bible itself, Revelation 22 says, Come, Lord Jesus. And that has been the cry of Christians for centuries. Lord, come. Come and fix this broken place. We long for the day that Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom when the brokenness of this world is going to be gone and everything is made right. It's not wrong for us to long for that. We're supposed to pray, God, your kingdom come. That's in the future. But there's a second sense that we pray your kingdom come, and it's for the present right here and right now. When Jesus came to the earth, he brought the kingdom of God with him. It's it's clear, when he began his public ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus came and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And just to further clarify that, in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, speaking of himself, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So something related to him brought in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus brought in the kingdom of God. He was the kingdom of God because he was the only person who ever fully accepted and carried out the will of the Father. He's the only one of us that wasn't tainted by sin, who wasn't tainted by selfishness, who wasn't tainted by, by our own will. He fully accepted and, and committed and carried out the will of his Father. Listen, if you and I are going to pray that prayer and say, God, your kingdom may come right here right now in the present Here's what it means for us. It means first that we have to learn how to repent. That we have to repent because, listen, we all recognize that we have our own desires. We have our own will. We have our own direction we want to go in life. And when we live our life, we seek to please our wills, do we not? We seek to to make our own choices, to do what we want to do. And when we seek God's kingdom, it means that we, we repent of seeking our own kingdom. We repent and say, okay, God, I recognize this. I need to seek your kingdom first and foremost, above my kingdom. Second thing, when we pray, your kingdom come in the present, it means that we commit ourselves to him. When we say, God, your kingdom come right here, right now, it means that we've decided to follow him. We decided to seek his kingdom. There's no turning back. There's no turning back to, to those other things, to the old way of living. We are all in. This is where we can't necessarily pray that that prayer, your kingdom come and kind of just twiddle our thumbs. We can't stand back and fold our hands. We actually have to be committed to praying that and to living that out. Third thing that when we pray your kingdom come in the present, it means that we are committed to make a difference in our world. See, when we're about God's kingdom right here, right now, it impacts those around us. There are people all around us, there are neighbors, there are coworkers. there are classmates, there are are, our family members around us. And when we seek God's kingdom, people will be impacted because of the way that you live. This is where there's going to be some lives that are going to be changed for eternity because of the way that you live. Because you've decided to to say, God, your kingdom come right here and I'm going to make that present in my life. This is where our schools become uh, different this is where this is where we make an impact in the ethics of our city because they've been touched by the kingdom of god this is where sometimes entire societies are elevated because of god's kingdom because there's a group of people who decide it's no longer about my kingdom now it's about god's kingdom and we put god's kingdom first and foremost above everything else listen just because Uh, We're living in the end times just because our world is broken does not mean that we uh, we can't make an impact on the world around us. Every one of us have an opportunity to do that. To make an impact on the world around us for the kingdom of God. The second phrase in seeking God's will that Jesus prays, verse 10, he says, uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a very fearful thing for you and I to pray. God, your will be done. When we pray that, it doesn't mean, God, your will be done out there. It doesn't mean, God, your will be done over uh, in the other side of the states, the other side of the country. Now, when we pray, God, your will be done, we mean right here in my life. And, and, and do, do, God, whatever you need to do for your will be do, to be done right here in my life. Here's the thing about wills. Here's the thing about uh, wills is we like to be in charge, right? We all like to be in charge. We like to be the captain of our own ship. We like to chart the course and say, listen, this is my life. This is where I'm going to go. These are decisions I'm going to make. And no one's going to tell me to do anything differently. That's your will. And we all like to have our own will. And even even after we come to Jesus, even after we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I'm going to follow you. Listen, it becomes a lifelong battle where we're trying to retake control, right? Any of you Christians understand what I'm talking about? Where we surrender to Jesus, and then it's that lifelong battle on who's in control, him or me. It's so where this past week I was in the office, and Jacob Heed was listening to this song, Jesus Take the Wheel. Like, that's, like, it, shouldn't that be our prayer? Jesus Take the, no, I'm not in charge, God. You're supposed to be in charge. Right, Jake? Look, <laughs> here's what I know about life. Is we like to be in charge. We like to call the shots. We like to, uh, we like to uh, blaze our own trail. And oftentimes, how blinded can we be in that? How foolish can we be in trying to chart our own trail? This is why we pray and say, God, your kingdom come. God your will be done because listen listen that's not the normal that's not normally the way that we live we live for our own kingdom we live for our own direction what we want so we pray and say God your kingdom come God your will be done instead of me 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 this is where you have to remember who he is remember that he is our father he's not some distant absentee god somewhere out there in the cosmos He's our Father, who knows us intimately, who has a greater amount of wisdom than you and I have, who has a greater amount of knowledge than you and I have, who is concerned about what's best for us. And if we would just listen to him, how much of the junk in life would he spare us from? If we would just listen to him. Can you think about it in your life? Can you think about that in your life where somebody said, listen. Here's the way you need to do it. Here's what needs to happen. And you said, nope, I'm my own person. No one's going to tell me how to live. I'm going to do my things my own way. And you do things your own way. And you're like, man, this stinks. I wish I would have listened to them back then. I wish I would have listened to the wisdom. I've got a father-in-law who built a house with me. And I love my father-in-law. He's a very smart man. But sometimes he drives me crazy. Because he's like, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to do this and this and this and this and this. I'm like, no, see, that's a round, that, that takes a long time. Look, I could just go straight here. He says, Kevin, I'm older than you. I've done this longer than you. I know what I'm talking about. Man, I've had to rebuild things because I didn't listen the first time. Listen, isn't that what God's trying to protect us from? To protect us from ourselves? How many times... Has God given us a direction? Has God and shown His will? And we've said, "No, God, I, know, I I got this. I know better than you do, God." Only to lead to more suffering and struggling. And what should have been a straight shot was a zigzag, zigzag of 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 a maze because we just won't listen. See, praying this prayer, "Your will be done." Listen, it might terrify us, but the reality is, ultimately, it will deliver us from ourselves. It'll deliver us from the mess that is ourselves. This prayer, your will be done, is probably the most fundamental element of prayer. That, listen, recognize this. Recognize that we may have wants. We may have desires. But God, who's the good Father, loves us and knows all things and knows ultimately what's best for us. And we have to take our desires and say, God, God, would you shape these? God, would you, would you help me to shape my desires to your will? I think my favorite example of this, my favorite example of this comes from the life of Jesus, actually. Jesus, the, the day before he went to the cross, the night that he was crucified, he went into the garden. And mind you, Jesus knew what was in front of him. He knew that he was going to be arrested, He knew that Judas Iscariot, one of his 12 best friends, was going to betray him. He knew that Peter, one of his closest three friends, was going to deny him. He he knew knew that he was going to be wrongly accused before uh, the the court system. He he knew that he was going to be dragged out in front of the crowds. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to be whipped. He knew that the crowds were going to ridicule him. He knew that he was going to have nails driven through his hands and nails driven through his feet as he was hung to the cross. He knew the incredible pain he was about to endure. And you know what he prayed? That night he prayed, Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You know what he prayed? He said, God, save me. Save me from what I'm about to have to endure. God, heal this. God, take this away. God, give me a spouse. God, God get me out of debt. God, God heal this relationship. God, God don't let my, my father die. God, God, do this. God, do that. And here's what Jesus prayed. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, my, not my will, but yours be done. Can we pray that prayer? Can we pray that prayer to say, God, here's where I'm at. Here's what I see. Here's what I want. Nevertheless, God, your will be done. Listen, here's what I know about praying. I know there's going to be times that God says no. I know that God's going to tell us no because he's not, we're not Aladdin and we don't have that magic lamp. It's not the way it works. He's going to tell us no, and that doesn't mean that God's angry with you. That doesn't mean that God is absent. That doesn't mean uh, anything like that. He says no because he knows more than we do. Because he loves us too much to always give us what we want. That's why he he lovingly says no. That's not best for you right now. We can be too short-sighted. And even when we pray good prayers and we pray for the right things, they can be denied not because God is cruel, but because he's all-knowing and you and I are not. The question for us this morning, the question for you is, do you trust God enough to pray that kind of prayer? To say, God, here's my desire. Here's where I'm at. Nevertheless, well, God, your will be done. Do you trust God to pray that prayer? Can you take your own knowledge, your own desires, your own wisdom, and can you lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, God, I trust your knowledge and your wisdom in my life? Do you believe what Philippians 1, 6 tells us? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Even though we may not understand it, we may not see the plan. We may not understand why we have to go through all the other steps. But we recognize and we trust that he who began a work in us will bring it to completion. Do you trust uh, Romans 8, 28? says, God works things out for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do you trust that statement? that God is working things out for his glory and our good. Do you trust that God? You aren't going to understand it all the times. There's going to be times where you say, this is definitely not the way I would choose to have this happen. But I still trust that God is still God. He is sovereign and in control, and he's got his hand in my life. And I don't understand why I have to go through this. But God, you do. And I trust you. See, the way way that the kingdom of God works, and I want us to hear this today as we bring this to a close. Listen, the more that you and I decrease, the more that God increases, the greater our life becomes. The more you and I decrease, the more he increases in our life, the greater our lives will become. The more he increases, the more we decrease. I promise you, the more anxieties in your life that will disappear. The more that fear in your life is going to dissipate. The more free you will be, the more empowered you will be. The less burdened you will be by other people's opinions of you. If you get this idea that that we have to decrease. And say it's not about me and my kingdom, it's about God and his kingdom. And we decrease and he increases. And listen, our life changes. In tremendous ways. Because no longer is about me and my limited knowledge. About what I want for my life. No longer is about me and my kingdom. Me and my will. Now it's about God's kingdom. And I trust that God is working things out. For his glory and my good. I might not always understand it. And it might be difficult. But I trust. And that gives me the ability To pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.